Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Who do you get your investment advice from? Are you a Jim Cramer fan? Love him or hate him, he did get people started in investing. I mean, he kind of, that bombastic attitude on TV. What is the real deal? That I don't know. But Jim Cramer's ETF, his long Jim Cramer fund that they, that he licensed, that franchised, you know, licensed out, the Jim Cramer fund shutters in just five months. It only brought in $1.3 million. That's like two medium-sized accounts or one big account. That's, that's not a lot. That's, that, that doesn't even pay the accounting fees. Anyway, they shut it, and when they asked him about it, there was no comment from Jim. And by the way, the new Bitcoin is here. They finally, Grayscale, finally, after begging and pleading with the SEC, they got approval for the new Bitcoin. We don't have the ticket. We'll, we'll let you know when that comes out. We'll be tracking it. And then the chip stock to own that's not AMD. That article's in the show notes. You can go read that. It's very interesting. And the IRS deadline for catch-up contributions. The IRS extended that to 2025. So you have one more year of reprieve if you're considered making a decent amount of money if you're doing okay and you do the catch-up provisions because if you're able to do a catch-up provision over 50 and a half and you're you're putting extra money in they decided that that needs to be Roth money because they need the tax money so starting in 2025 it could be 26 but I think it's 2025 if you put in say the the 225 that you can do now but if you're over 50 you can put in that extra 7500 up to 30,000 that's for this year. They would say that extra seventy five hundred would have to go into a Roth four hundred one k. It can't go into a regular four hundred one k because they want your tax money. Anyway, that's just interesting. Um, and another article that's kind of interesting. I'm not sure I quite buy it, but it does slow the economy. There is lots of studies on this. Is that raising the deficits will lead to lower interest rates, not higher. Everybody assumes that because the company, the country gets more debt, that they have the inability to pay the bills, and then people start start uh, asking for higher rates to cover the risk of def- the risk that you have. But on the other side, too much debt pulls down the economy, slows down the economy. When you go into recession or slow down, rates drop. 
Anyway, that's an interesting article. And 10 annuity facts that you should know if you do an annuity. We hope you don't. But if you do, there's 10 facts. And folks, basically, it's mostly about how to take how to unwind it in, in the annuitization phase. Because if you do it right, you can have uh, income and return of principal both, not just return of uh, uh, income first and return of principal second. Because most annuit- if you annuitize and start taking the money out and you don't do it right, it's 100% income first and then return of principal second. So it can really hurt your tax courts. But anyway, and the Massachusetts court a uh, 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 Massachusetts court just put broker dealers. They put the state fiduciary tag on broker dealers. That's very, I don't know how you do that. I mean, if you're working on commission, I don't know how you can be a fiduciary. So in any event, that's going to be interesting for the regulatory bodies. We got to see how they're even going to implement that or what they're going to do. And finally, so anyway, all those are in the show notes. They're interesting. If you want to talk about those, you want to go deep. But I certainly don't want to grind the show to a a halt talking about annuities. And I'm sure Don doesn't want me to do that either. So we're going to go right to the mailbag. And then we're going to get into the markets, folks. Um, This one is uh, this is a two string one. I'm going to give this in two parts because this this is actually a, a client and a listener, loyal listener and a client. And he also manages some on his own. He's a stock nerd. And he actually emailed this. And I had, this was actually previously in the mailbag way back in January. But he came back to revisit. So I want to go over this whole thing so that you can kind of see how we actually, how investing and uh, portfolio investing and trading is ongoing. And you can always come back to the same stock. You can come back and revisit others. Hello, Dan and Don. First, let me say I'm very happy with the job you've been doing in this very treacherous market environment. Uh, This is January 8th. Um, This is why I chose your firm. A stock idea for your consideration, it's Array, A-R-R-Y. I'm sure it's come up on your screens because excellent fundamentals and can slim characteristics. I think it's done with its current early stage base. Friday, it had a beautiful shakeout bar and closed at the top third of its range. Just an idea for consideration. Little side note, Dan, thanks for the rub. Anyway, Don. This is Don's respond. Hey, JB, thanks for reaching out. Kind words. It's been a really tough market. This is right at the end of the bear market. Okay. Array, A-R-R-Y, is one of the solar stocks we actively monitor, but it has an ATR, an average true range of 8%. That makes it extremely volatile. Folks, that means it moves 8% a day on average, either up 8% or down 8%. Or down four and then reverses back to be up four. Or it could be up four and be back down. Anyway, that's a wide range, which makes it extremely volatile and tough to handle in this market. That was quite a shakeout on 1.6, and its trading range on that day was over 19%. Yikes. The 20 level is acting as resistance currently. Thanks again, DV. Fast forward to today, or a couple days ago, 8.27. I continue to monitor ARRY, and I'm looking for one more test of the 20 level, and I think it could be ready to go. Don's response. Hey, uh, JB, did you look at the rest of the group and the solar ETF? Typically, it's very difficult to a stock to outperform without support from its industry group. I do still have alerts set for it. Thanks, Don. 
When we go back to Don, we'll bring that up. We'll talk about that, about a stock that may be acting pretty well, and it's bucking the trend of the sector, and the rest of the sector is tough. And so you got headwinds there. How would you handle that stock? All right. So then this is the next one. This is from KC. Uh, hi, Dan and Don. I just saw this tweet. Uh, this is 829, by the way. Saw this tweet on, on X. It's so hard to not call it Twitter anymore. Call this funny because I got back from Phoenix and was just floored by the amount of people spending money on fine dining, resort stays, et cetera. Uh, happy to say I was, I, I was too, meaning being able to afford it, but I have the cash to cover the charges. If the economy is doing so bad, then how is it the people can still, uh, are still out spending money like, like money is no object? Perhaps a chart, this chart tells a truer picture. I should have had Don to have that chart loaded up. That was my bad. Um, I remember asking my, the, myself the same question back in tw 2005, 2006, and we all know how that en ended. Interesting conversation for the video, perhaps. Thanks, Casey. Don's answer, or actually my answer, me. We will discuss consumer spending on the show. You also have to take in consideration the change in credit card balances. If they are increasing, uh, that can make up the difference. They can make up the difference with deficit spending. However, when the consumers hit their spending limit, uh, uh, you know, the, when they hit their limit, the credit limit spending will decline. The question is how strong the consumer is, but your point in discretionary spending being strong is a valid one to ask because the charts are telling us it seems like spending is strong. Also, is it the, another question? Is it a two tiered uh, uh, credit system where the upper middle and upper classes are fine, but the middle and lower classes are hurting? Thanks for sending. And finally, I, and this is going to be apropos. You know what? Let's talk about these first two first, and then we're going to come back uh, to this last one because the last one actually actually is apropos for kind of talking about our, our strategy and our map movement and, and, and money on the sidelines. So, Don, you want to handle Array first, the first mailbag question about Array, A-R-R-Y? Sure. Yeah, let's go back to the, the first email. Uh, here's the shakeout that he was talking about. Uh, and you can see the wide ATR. Look at the wide bars on array. So as we progress through this, keep an, keep an eye on a couple of things. First of all, what is the S&P doing? And then what is array doing on its chart? And then what are doing on a relative basis versus the S&P 500? Those are the three uh, things you always have to take into consideration. So after this shakeout, it had a, a big uh, move up, this 2560, 2460-ish level, and then it started building a base. Very normal because look at what the market was doing. It was pulling back. Uh, the market then started going higher. Array just kept chopping around. You can widen and loose. That's this blue line here. That's the relative strength line uh, was. Array announced earnings in early May and it had an initial positive reaction to it. It came right up to this uh, resistance area, 2460, let's say call it 25 at the top, which is where now note the market's still going higher and then Array was not going higher with the market and its relative strength line was terrible. Let's compare this now to, I mentioned, what is the overall sector doing? And the solar sector has just been 
awful this year. Uh, and, but Array has stood out versus the sector. So let's go back first to January. Uh, you can see this is the blue relative strength line. Anytime you see the relative strength line above the price, that's going to tell you that uh, it, if it ends up below the price, the relative strength line was very good and then it switched to very bad. And that's what we're seeing with, with solar stocks here. You can see the relative strength line going lower. The price kind of tried to form here, broke down, tried to form another base, broke down, and it's just been in a terrible trend. So we normally require uh, the group to be healthy uh, when we're considering a stock. But you can see here the group strength, the group relative strength rating is an E. That's the worst possible uh, for solar stocks. Let's separate what Array is doing now from what uh, the, the group was doing because Array gapped up again uh, on its earnings report in August, had a normal pullback along with the market pulling back, Array pulling back. And as I showed, uh, all overall solar stocks pulling back really badly. And then it found uh, support at this point and started to go back to the upside. Now we monitor this because we always have a list of what is the strongest stock in any sector. And it did uh, above this uh, resistance area, 2371, came up to 25, paused for a while, tried to break out yesterday, paused for a while, and it's trying to break out again today. So it is showing relative strength. It by meaning array is showing relative strength against the market, uh, but the solar ETF uh, is not in, in any way, shape or form. Uh, a little bit of a move up over the last couple of days, but overall the group is terrible. The, the only other, uh, stock in the group that's worth uh, really looking at is First Solar. Uh, and you can see that, you know, mediocre at best, note the relative strength line uh, in a downtrend uh, as of recently. While, uh, while it's trying to make some improvement in price, the relative strength line is it. So the bottom line is that there's a stat for uh, when a stock moves higher, and I don't remember the exact breakdown, but 50% of the stock's move is tied to the sector and the overall market. Uh, the market's improving. We had a follow-through day on Tuesday, the 29th, but the group isn't. Uh, we'll keep an eye on this to see if it settles down a little bit and to see if the group improves. Uh, we, we like the name. The fundamentals are good, uh, certainly good growth there, uh, but normally, stocks need uh, at least one sister stock in the group or we need to see the group improving off of uh, from from the bottom 20 percent uh, of overall groups in the ibd universe uh, so for right now this is a pass for us uh, there are other names out there that are acting as well or better that have better group strength and we're focused more on those but uh, he he certainly identified the leader in the group. Certainly it has great fundamentals, uh, but the group right now uh, is holding the stock back or is, 
let's say it's more of an anchor. If this had a healthy group, the stock would probably be flying higher. It did just make uh, a 20% move in uh, less than two weeks, pretty impressive off of this 20 level. It's also tightened up a little bit on its average true range. You can see how wide and loose the bars were over here. They tightened up a little bit during this pullback when it was forming uh, this base. So. Uh, the ATR is a little more uh, acceptable for us right now. It's still a bit on the high side. The chart looks great. The group looks awful. Okay, so I want a couple follow-up questions. If you were, so for Revere, it's a pass because they, you, you've got enough other stocks that you like with sectors, headwinds versus, I mean, uh, tailwinds versus headwinds. But if you were going to take a position, because it's got a, such a wide average true range, you actually want to adjust your position size a little smaller so that when you, because you need a, a wider stop because just a five or 6% stop one day's just a little bit outside of a normal range or just two days in a row down days, you get stopped out. So you're going to have to have a, a nine or 10 or let, you know, you have to have a pretty wide stop loss on that. And therefore you would have a smaller position size. Absolutely. Um, we score, uh, every every stock in the universe based on its beta and its average true range. Uh, we call that uh, RVAB, Revere Volatility Adjusted Beta, and it dictates what, what's the maximum position size that we would take in an individual name. Okay. So good name here. I mean, it's, it's, it's on our universe list, but not on our focus list. Okay. All right. So let's now, let's switch gears. Let's talk about this... Uh, because uh, KC had had some questions about the consumer spending in the chart. You know, she was talking about how strong consumer spending was or is based on that chart. And how could it how could it be if everybody's talking about the economy slowing? Uh, the economy is fairly, I don't want to say robust, but it's it's the economy is actually doing OK. It's just starting to slow with the rates. So consumer spending may just not have you know, is, is people start getting a little more scared and as people start feeling it more, you might see uh, spending contract. But also the real issue is credit card debts, I think, and I'll ask Michael on this one. I think credit card debt is now consumer credit card debt is at an all time high right now. Michael, do you know if that's correct or I believe that is correct. Yeah. 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 So, so at some point they're going to hit their, their, their threshold because unlike our esteemed uh, United States government who has the printing press and doesn't worry about whether they're going to go bankrupt or not because they just print, uh, consumers do. And the credit card companies will raise the interest rates and pretty soon that'll uh, slow spending. But she is, KC, you are right. You've got to make sure that you uh, follow the charts uh, because the charts will get, not only will it get you in when you, when your beliefs are contra to what the chart is telling you, it will also get you out because you're scared. Like if you're getting in and it doesn't make sense, you certainly want to have an, uh, sell discipline. All right. And the chart, the chart I have up that I found was rele uh, relevant to this, uh, mailbag was, is Visa. You can see it's, uh, a very nice chart. Uh, and it's supportive of the fact that people are spending and they're spending that money uh, and it's going on credit cards. 
look at yeah, the yeah. earnings <laughs> yeah. that that visa uh puts up i mean they just print money year after year after year their earnings are higher uh and it just broke out of a nice base uh decent relative strength mastercard very similar um well breaking at- out of a nice base like it doesn't carry over to discover though or american express those are weaker uh and i think that it, it may be because they don't have uh, they don't have branded debit cards the way Visa and uh, Mastercard do. Um, you mean branded credit cards or debit? Uh, credit, credit, and debit. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they take a piece uh, every time something yeah. Yeah. Uh, is. Um, well, that that's actually a very AXP. interesting. That's actually a very interesting point from the flip side. So she's saying consumers spending is pretty strong. Well, well. well from an investor standpoint, how do you take advantage of that? Well, if consumer debt is at all-time highs, that means MasterCard's income is probably at all-time highs or at least going up, right? So yep. in, in any event, that's, that's uh, interesting. We'll just keep following the charts. All right, final mailbag before we go to Team Revere because this is very apropos. And I'm going to kind of set the table when we go to Don and and Team Revere. Um, so, you know, at the beginning of the year, we were in a bear market. It was very tough. The market was ugly. Uh, things were choppy. It was very difficult to begin the year. And then finally, the market started acting right, kind of late spring, I guess. I'm just doing this from memory. Started doing well. And just this month, it got a little tough, got choppy. We had a pullback. So we're going to kind of set up for what's going on, uh, what's going forward. Now, TT. Hey, Don, I noticed a lot of cash on the sidelines in my review. This is also a client, too. My Revere managed accounts, not invested in anything. Curious why that's not in play, at least earning a decent interest rate. Good question. Uh, been super slammed and missing your videos. I should be able to return as a regular view soon. I've been out of pocket, hardly time to tune in. Uh, curious if uh, Revere ever puts out reports. I kind of lost track of my principal. Um, um, realized gains and losses, um, unrealized gains, and losses, dividends, interest, et cetera. Um, um, is there a way you can help me track that at Revere? Um, thanks, Don. You keep rocking. Uh, hi, TT. The explanation is too long for an email. I addressed it in the final minutes of tonight's video. That was on 829. Short answer. It's always portfolio management strategic timing issue. He's talking about the cash on the sidelines. Okay, so before we go to Don and talk about the cash issue, uh, yeah, so at Revere, we actually download from Schwab and TD, but now just going to be Schwab. We download every day the balances and everything to our portfolio management system. It's VestNet Tamarack. It's called Tamarack. And um, we're able to help do planning and tax, do do all the reporting. And in fact, they're more geared toward um, the client rather than the broker-dealers. The broker-dealers reports are really just uh, disclosures that the regulators require them to report, not necessarily what may or may not be taxable to you. So you got to be careful because if you have margin interest, that is a non-reportable thing to the IRS. So if you had some margin interest, you can offset your interest income. It won't do it on the uh, Schwab or Fidelity 1099. Okay. If you do cap uh, roll covered calls, I think that is still, it used to be, I think that's still a non-reported item to the IRS. You're going to have to pay short-term capital gains on that call premium though. 
So anyway, in any event, uh, we do have reporting. Now, if you're a client, please don't reach out to me in the next two to three weeks. Right now, this weekend, this upcoming weekend, is when all the TD accounts are going over to Schwab. Uh, they claim it's going smoothly. We've had a few little issues, but we're watching that, tracking that very quickly. So in the next week or two, it really is going to be all hands on deck. So if you're able to, please just just try to hold your questions for a, a week or two, and then I will be happy to help you. Now, going back to lots of cash on the sidelines, Don, why are you holding so much cash? So it's, as I said, it's uh, portfolio management um, related. So during uh, this move up in the market, we were just about fully uh, invested in the market. Um, didn't have anything in T-bills and uh, the available cash was, was not substantial enough to put it either into a money market mutual fund that pays a higher yield or a uh, short-term T-bill ETF that pays a decent yield. If we buy either of those, we get overnight settlement on the mutual fund. It's a two-day settlement on uh, the ETFs. But as the market uh, started to roll over and to go into a correction, we started putting more money uh, into T-bills and we got 20% into, and when I say T-bills, I'm talking about buying individual bonds, uh, short-term treasuries, Dan handles uh, all those trades, the value shown in the portfolio ticks up uh, a little bit every day until it gets to the full maturity value uh, of the T-bill. And then the T-bill rolls off, the money goes back into uh, the equivalent of the cash fund uh, and is available for immediate uh, move into stocks or, or bonds, or we could buy uh, uh, more T-bills if we wanted to. But after, um, the follow-through day, which we had early week, we don't want to have all of our money tied up in uh, in an ETF that would take two days to settle. So it's, let's suppose it was, and we want to buy something. We sell that cash immediately, or sell the ETF immediately. So then the money goes into cash. Then we have to buy something with it, but we're buying it with unsettled funds, which means we can't sell it until that initial... We can't sell what we would put it into. Like, let's say we just wanted to buy Tesla. We bought Tesla and then the next day Tesla gapped down 10% with that money. It'd be a violation if we sold that Tesla because we bought it with unsettled funds. Uh, so we're locked into that position until the sale of the T-bill ETF settles. Right, so we don't want to take the risk of uh, moving money, putting all of our money into uh, T-bill ETFs because when the market's healthy, we want to be buying uh, either sector ETFs, uh, index ETFs, or individual names. So now that the market's in an uptrend, we want to, we have 55% uh, in the market, we've got 25% in cash, and we've got 20% in T-bills. So we want to keep that 25%. Uh, ready to be able to pounce at opportunities uh, where we get low risk entry points on individual names. I know that the T-bills pay 5% over the year, but the right stock, you get 5% in a day if you get it into it. So it's just, a, a, we, we assess the market, we assess um, what, the, what the likelihood is that we're gonna need to put this cash into the market right away, depending on how the market's working and depending on how much we already have in the market. 
uh, and then we just weigh that against the need or the desire to get the nice yield uh, out of the uh, short-term instrument. Uh, I do want to note that Schwab doesn't pay a lot for the cash that's sitting there. Fidelity does. If you're a Fidelity customer out there, uh, my hat's off to Fidelity. They pay over 5% on the cash that just sits there, but uh, Schwab does not. Uh, yeah, so you so got to put it in the Schwab money, right? You got to put it in, in the, put it in the Schwab money market. If you put it in the Schwab money market, then it doesn't, you've got at least one day settlement with that. Or if you buy the ETF, uh, it, um, you've got the two day settlement. So, well, again, yeah, and, uh, and let me, let me talk about that. A little. So last year we didn't have any bonds cause you had inflation and rising rates and bonds were getting creamed. So you don't want any bonds. As they started raising rates higher and higher and toward the end of the year, we started adding T, but well, Half, I guess halfway through the year, we started adding T-bills last year, short term. They're not bonds like long term that get hit with inflation and rising rates. They're very short term, so their price isn't impacted. Anyway, so we buy those T-bills and we started getting up to 40, 40% at one point. Then as we got more bullish, we started letting them just mature and then not re-rolling them over. So we got down to as low as 10% and then upped it again just to 20. And, and we're using individual T-bills because they can't reduce the rate. If rates drop, we lock that rate in. They can't drop it like those average seven-day average yield on those treasury money market funds. So in order of, of best, T-bills are usually better, but they're increments of $1,000. So then you round out the remainder with the government money market fund, but that's where we're going to do the active trading. So, and we can release that. So there's a, a, a kind of a tightrope you got to watch walk between having that, those funds available for trading in the equities and then having some that you're just getting for the fixed income. But I want to go a different angle on that. Oh, go ahead. You want to say something, Don? Yeah, I want to point out this chart that I have up now, this is, and this is very important. This is a short-term T-bill ETF. So note that it goes up consistently each day of the month, and then it drops on the last day of the month when it pays out uh, its dividend. And then you wait about a week until that dividend gets, uh, gets uh, posted to your account. So, and then you mentioned, Dan, bonds getting slaughtered. Now this is a short-term ETF, usually up to three months that we're holding. Look at, the bond, a broad bond index, uh, and let's look at it on a weekly chart. Look at how you bought this. This is what the performance that you got for 21 and 22. You got hammered if you bought uh, TLT or if you were in and, and why people were uh, really complaining how 60-40 portfolio, the bonds didn't protect them at all. This is you know, you were getting a very small yield out of this, but the price, you were getting hammered. This went from 150 to 80. Your principal got cut in half during 2022. If you own long-term bond ETFs, this is not the way to go uh, in any way, shape, or form. And that's just a, a because uh, interest rates were uh, falling, interest rates were going up, interest rates go up, the price of bonds goes down. So we're only talking about ETFs that are short term and they're very liable. You're getting the interest and you don't have your net asset value at 
risk or the price is not at risk the way it is if you're in a longer duration bond ETF or bond mutual fund. Yeah, that's an important uh, yeah. concept. Yeah, it's a short term. It's basically a surrogate for the money market. It's a it's a higher yielding right. short term. That's how we use it. But here's the other thing that I want to make sure that we absolutely don't miss on on this guy's email. I noticed a lot of cash on the sidelines. TT, what you don't notice is our beta is still over one. So, for instance, Connor has a tracking portfolio, a, a test portfolio of his own that we're tracking. And he's got about 50% cash right now, but his bait is 1.6. That means he's 60% more volatile, if you will, or moves more than the S&P. So theoretically, if the S&P is up 1%, he's going to be up 1.6%. So just because you have 50% cash, that doesn't mean you're only 50% invested. You could have the equivalent great, of being 200% yep. invested. So your cash does not equal how conservative or risky you are. It depends on the other positions in the portfolio. So I want that's the thing I really wanted you to uh, uh, touch on too, not just the, the cash, trading the cash and the trying to enhance the short-term idle cash. Right. But, but anyway. Good point. All right. So with that said, now let's talk about the markets because the market's been kind of choppy. Everything seemed like the coast is clear. Remember a few uh, a month and a half ago, I said the train's leaving the station. Are you on board? And I should have known that could have been the death nail for things to turn around because about a, a week later, the, the train stopped and it looked like the tracks needed repair. So where are they, Don? Are the tracks fixed and is the train uh, uh, leaving again or is it, is it stalling? Yeah, they repaired the tracks uh, on Tuesday of this week. They were, uh, and the train is able to head on down the track uh, for the time being. And that just means that the correction that we were in for August, uh, once you start into a correction, we look for something called a, a follow through day. This is part of the William O'Neill Investors Business Daily uh, investing discipline. First thing you need to do is for the market to stop going down. The market stopped going down uh, uh, two Fridays ago. So then you look for preferably day four through day seven for what's called a follow through day. And this is uh, the markets are up on higher volume and you see good reaction out of leading stocks. And what we got uh, on Tuesday of this week, it was actually day eight off of the bottom was this follow through day. And it came out of the blue. Uh, the markets opened that Tuesday flat, and at 10 o'clock, some jolts data came out. That's job openings, and it was weaker uh, than expected, and that's what the Fed wants. The Fed's been harping on we can't stop raising interest rates because, uh, it, because of the threat of inflation because the job market is so strong. So any weakness in the job market is seen as a, the likelihood that the Fed is going to stop raising rates. And that was the catalyst for uh, this big rally day on Thursday. And we're not giving back any of the gains. Uh, immediately what you look for after you get one of these follow through days is to make sure that there's nothing, no distribution. And a distribution day just means a down day significant down day uh, on heavier volume than the prior day. And um, the market has not sold off significantly enough to indicate that we're seeing a distribution day. Uh, and also factor in that this is the last week in August. This is the historically lightest volume traded of the year uh, after Labor Day 
all of the New York traders come back from the Hamptons and they uh, kick it back up again. But seasonality, from a seasonality standpoint, August is weak. It was weak. All five of the indexes finished down for the month. Uh, we rallied a little bit a couple days uh, going into the end of the month. And we'll see what September brings us. But as of right now, we are in our flagship portfolio is called Growtection. That's protect when we're in a downtrend, grow when we're in an uptrend. And we went back into uptrend mode as of this last Tuesday. And we put money to work both in the indexes and in individual names. And that's what we'll continue to do until evidence to the contrary tells us that the market is not as healthy uh, as was prior to this follow through day. And the key that we'll, we're using is the just levels on the individual names, levels, uh, the indexes and the moving averages on individual names and the indexes to tell us, because we invest over three time frames. We, we want short-term to be healthy, medium-term to be healthy, and long-term to be healthy. Long-term, as long as we're above this black line, the 200-day moving average, we want to keep uh, certainly some money in the market, maybe more in the indexes than in leading stocks. And that's where we found ourselves uh, while this latest pullback had out of most of our individual names, but uh, not the index ETFs that we were in because no bear market occurs until you break the 200-day moving average. We held the 100-day moving average, uh, didn't break that. So um, the pullback was relatively mild. It, it topped out between five and 6% highs. You just have to accept that, that as part of investing. So, you know, our, our accounts pulled back uh, between five and 6% off of the highs as we locked in profits, stopped buying things, and just waited for the market itself out, uh, either to the ups or the downside. We have no bias. We're gonna follow what the market's gonna tell us. Uh, and then we had the follow through day on Tuesday and that's the green light to get involved again. And, um, you know, we track this every night in the videos in the trend gauge that we put up. How are leading stocks doing? How are we over three time frames, uh, the three time frames that we invest over? And uh, that's how we keep uh, everybody up to date and um, keep ourselves up to date and in check because we want to make sure that our emotions aren't keeping us from doing something that's contrary to what the market is telling us to do. All right. All right. Well, so uh, what does Ted have for us today? Teddy 10 charts is actually Teddy 11 charts. Now he got a promotion to, uh, we need to get him like down to Teddy five, five charts, his five most important charts. Five charts? <laughs> I don't know. All, all these, all these are pretty important, Dan. And, uh, Ted will take it away and tell you right now, he's got some nice trend lines drawn that support, uh, what we have been, uh, looking the thesis. for. We got as, yeah, we got it as of this week. So a thesis without price, uh, Confirmation. confirmation is yeah. is just a dream, right? So we got confirmation. <laughs> Hang on. Hang on. I need to write that down. Hey, hey what did you say? A, a, a stock? A thesis without confirmation is just a dream. Without confirm price confirmation. Oh, that's awesome. I'm sorry, folks. We're uh, actually uh, producing on air. We do that a lot. You'll We're just raw here. We give you the raw data, the raw feed. It's... <laughs> while it's going on. All right, Ted, go ahead. So last week I talked about these charts and I actually had upper trend lines drawn, but I kind of removed them because they're not as relevant now. And as Don said, and as I talked about on the last podcast, we wanted to look for the downtrend line break um, to kind of support our thesis that the trend may be turning. And so we pretty much got that downtrend line break. 
as soon as we got the follow through day this week. So um, the train that's come on schedule and we, we'd like to see this action. So this is the S&P 500 chart, weekly chart um, with its corresponding advanced decline lines. And we got that downtrend line break. So the next one is the NASDAQ. And we've talked about this being suppressed, but the caveat is that the NASDAQ includes like many penny stocks and what we call like crappy stocks. So this, this indicator definitely gets skewed a little bit. So I've considered not showing this chart, but I, I've kept it because it still can kind of tell us what the junk pile is doing. And in a truly, truly healthy market where everything is um, in full gear, we still should see this advanced decline line in an uptrend, which is why I'm gonna continue including it. Continue on as usual. Um, I'll have the S&P 500 daily chart with its corresponding net highs and lows indicator. And we do like to see this with the follow through day. Uh, new lows have contracted and new highs have expanded, which, get, which gives us that net high reading shown in the bottom panel. Um, the NASDAQ chart, which is next, has yet to see net highs, but we are pretty much at that neutral reading. It is good to see that new lows have contracted and new highs are expanding. So we are moving in the right direction as well in the NASDAQ. But as I've said on previous podcasts, in a truly healthy market, we want to see hundreds of net highs in both the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. For usual, the next couple charts are the McKellen summation indexes. And as, as, as I've circled, we got the hookup and now we're approaching the 10-day moving average. So we haven't officially gotten the, like, the quote-unquote buy signal yet, but it seems like we're getting close and we're also coming off the RSI oversold reading into neutral territory, which is definitely what we want to see, especially corresponding with the follow through that. The next one is the NASI and pretty much same story here as the NISI. We, we got the hookup, which is a good first move in the right direction. And now we want to see us get back over that 10 day moving average with that moving average curling upward with both of them trending up. And we're also moving away from oversold territory and looking to break back into that neutral ground. The next two charts, the first one is the S&P 500 weekly chart once again. And this time, like I talked about on previous podcasts, we wanted to see the downtrend line breaks on the percentage of stocks about the 50 day, 150 day and 200 day moving averages. We did, we, we are seeing um, the breaks on all three of them. The 50 day one had a pretty steep um, drop and we're now seeing it curl up, which is exactly what we, what we want to see. And then the 200, the stocks above the 200 and 150 day held up much better than the stocks, the percentage of stocks above the 50 day. Continuing on is the NASDAQ chart. And we also got the downtrend line breaks. We definitely want to see the percentage of stocks above the 50 day move higher as well after that precipitous decline. So now onto some, sent, onto some sentiment. Sentiment still remains like relatively neutral, but more bearish leaning. The Sienna fear and greed last week was in the neutral territory, but more on the fear side. And now we're closer to the greed side. The AAII individual investor sentiment is still displaying bearish readings with bearish readings above his historical averages and then bullish readings below historical averages. And this is kind of precisely what we want to see when we get a follow through day and some stocks breaking out. We want to see that bearish sentiment because that just kind of shows us that there might be more, there potentially may be more room to run, especially with people still on the sidelines 
thinking that the markets are quote unquote bearish. And then yeah, that's the a, NAM. That, that, that's yeah. a good contrarian indicator that AAII is what you're saying. Yeah. And the NAM, I just kind of want to talk about like, I, I started this new book um, called The Confidence Map by Peter Atwater. He was one of my favorite professors from William and Mary. And he kind of talks about confidence decision making. And what I want to point about this chart is we saw this precipitous decline from the highs all the way below 2023, like the beginning of 2023 levels. And this kind of just shows the volatile um, nature of money managers right now from kind of in their comfort zone all the way to what Peter Alwater calls a stress center. And honestly, when I finish this book, maybe I'll do a podcast segment on the book and maybe covering the, the top points because I, I do find it very valuable how if we can look inward at ourselves and where we lie on what he calls the confidence quadrant, um, we can kind of, not, we, can, we, can, we can kind of forecast um, where prices may move in the future. Um, and so this is kind of what I have for this week. He's a pretty, he's a pretty, All so right. he was your professor. Did you have classes with him? Yeah, I took financial economics with him. Oh man, was, that is awesome. He's, yeah. he's a rock star, it, it, man. It was, yeah, it was probably my favorite class in college. Um, so I'm really glad I took it last semester because, um, I took pretty much all science classes, biology, chemistry. and Yeah. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. He's a rock star. That's cool, man. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ted. Uh, let's go over to Connor. He's got a couple clips to, uh, review. Connor, take it away. Yeah. So for today, I just wanted to talk about five leading stocks that have been standing out to me. Um, while the market was correcting, they were holding up better. And after we got the follow through day, um, these stocks just kind of trampolined into, into new highs and have been showing great strength. So I got five different names from kind of five different industry groups. So the first one, if you, you can just pull up the charts for these stocks, Don is Celsius. I've talked about this one before, and I think two weeks ago on the podcast, I highlighted this one and I made the analogy that, you know, when the market is correcting and you find a stock that's holding up well, it's like trying to hold like a balloon underwater. So, and you can see with Celsius, once we got that follow through day and the market rebounded, it shot right back up into highs and it's coming on to this 200 level. Um, so that will be a big spot, but this just has just phenomenal characteristics, great earnings, great sales, and it's a product that super easy to understand. And I drink them quite a bit and I know a lot of my friends drink them. So definitely add some conviction to the story. Uh, next one is Uber. This is another one. This one really stood out because like I said, when the market was correcting, it's kind of rare. Kind of call it like the power of three it's when uber pulled back from those highs and it got extremely tight while the 8 21 and 50 day almost were all on top of each other so that just kind of signals that um, there's some compression going on in the stock and and it could be ready for some expansion and similar to celsius when we got that follow through day and the indexes turned around this thing uh, broke out of this mini range back above the 8 21 and 50 and has been acting well so far. And, you know, this, this Uber's an, a name that goes a while back. I think I first highlighted this one on the podcast when it had that power earnings gap 
and then bounced at the 21. So I think a good reference also is a lot of the leaders are, are names that are gapping up on earnings. And, and that's a big sign if there's a big gap on earnings is showing that institutions want in, and that means they're going to likely be looking to buy at any pullback. And ever since that gap, Uber's held up extremely well. Uh, next one is VRT. This is similar to Celsius. It, it was, it's not been the easiest one. Um, it, it can shake you out here and there at times like that, that shake out to the 21. And that was the day the indexes bottomed, I believe. And ever since that shakeout got the follow through date, it's been grinding higher. And a common theme is that most stocks that are showing these power earning gaps are the first ones to go when the market shows signs of strength. So this is VRT's second power earnings gap. And if you use the last time as a precedent, um, it gapped up and never looked back. And this time it, it kind of came and filled that gap a little bit um, on that shake under the eight. But after that, it got bought right back up and, and it's trading higher. Next one is IOT. This is from the computer software um, enterprise industry group. This reported earnings today, extremely positive reaction. They had triple digit earnings increase. And this one was an interesting one. Um, it, it gapped up previously on earnings and followed through. And then during this market, um, while the market's corrected, this came all the way back to its gap. It held it and now it's uh, trying to move out into new high ground. And if you go to the weekly chart down, this is a really nice weekly base and it's kind of forming a handle here. So this will be a good one to watch over the coming weeks to see if it can hold this um, earnings gap. But yeah, that weekly looks great. The, the obvious overhead is just that um, around that IPO high. So once it can get over that, it's got no resistance and just and anybody that's bought the stock would be in a profit. So that's a good way to think about it when a stock's moving into all time highs. And then the last one is CCJ. The uranium sector has been getting a lot, has been acting really well. Um, this is the clear leader in the uranium space. And as you can see, once it broke out of that mini base, it's just trending higher, riding the AEMA and 21 EMA sloping up with the 50 and it's putting in a relative strength new high again today. So sometimes these stocks can, once they get out of their base, they go on these lockout type moves, which makes it hard to get in. And that just kind of really um, shows how strong it is when, when you're watching a stock and, and you just can't get in because CCJ has been on the whole team's 21 over 21 list for a while. And it's been a tough one, but the price action is very good. And if you go to the weekly, Don, it's got a nice, uh, it's breaking out over a big, yeah, huge, huge base breakout on the weekly. So that's positive for the uranium sector. And, and all five of these different names are different sectors, industry groups. So yeah, those are five stocks that I'm watching that I think have great leadership qual qualities. So something to keep an eye out moving forward.
great point about the different industry groups. We have everybody on the team keeps their own 2121 list. And one of the rules that we have mandated is you've got to have at least 10 different sectors represented uh, on your list. And if you're having a hard time getting 10 leaders from 10 different sectors, that tells you all you need to know about the narrowness and the strength of the market. Uh, and even back when everybody was saying the only thing that was jacking the market up was the big seven or the magnificent seven, we never had a single problem getting the diversification that we needed across uh, indexes. Good stuff, Connor. Mike, the guy who puts the fun in fundamentals has a great topic for us this week. Take it away, Mike. All right, let's do it. Uh, just before I get into my segment, I actually wanted to mention something about, uh, Dan mentioned this earlier, in relation to government debt. I, I have heard a lot of people talk, there, there's even a website where it's like the, the government, the federal debt clock, and, and a lot of talk about just how the levels of debt in the US are unsustainable. But something that I've noticed that that's missing in the conversation that people don't really bring up, and it is very difficult to measure because unlike a, a business, you don't have the federal government's balance sheet, so you can't really calculate this. You could try to put little pieces together, but it's I haven't really seen a lot of studies on it, and it's hard to get this information. But something you've got to consider is the other side of the balance sheet. Everyone talks about the government liabilities, how much debt they have. But how many assets does the government have? And also part of that debt, when you look at a company, like, like for example, I spoke about, I think I did a, a, a segment on, on Freeport, but, um, but anyway, these companies, when you look at a company's net debt, or it was on CIX, when you look at their net debt, what you do is you subtract how much cash they have that's sitting in money market accounts, it's generating a yield, you subtract that from their liabilities, and even though they may have $10 billion of debt on their balance sheet, their net debt is only really a billion and a half or two billion. So when you're looking at the government's liabilities, you can't just say, oh, they have all this outstanding debt. You got to see, okay, how much of that is, is, uh, is, is funding agencies that are actually generating a yield on that debt as well. So I don't think it's as bad as people bring it up to be. Um, I'm just looking at the fact they're adding a couple that. trillion dollars on the on the on the deficit every year. <laughs> That's what I'm looking at. Yeah, but how much of that is is generating um, interest for them? And I don't know. It's more complicated than just looking at the liability. Oh, sure, sure. Something sure. that that I don't hear hear people uh, really mention. So I just wanted to bring that up. Um, and then now, in terms of the segment, so I'm going to be talking about something called free cash flow today, and. If anyone ever has ever heard of or read an analyst report, one of the, the typical ways that analysts value companies is through a discounted cash flow analysis. And what you use for that is you use the company's cash flows to then discount them back at a required rate of return, at a discount rate, and then that's how you come up with the present value of those future cash flows. Kind of did it a little bit with CIX with that example of how much cash they had and what they were generating, but you want to use free cash flows for that. And what I will say is for most of the people that are that are watching our podcast and and people that if you're following the the William O'Neill, the Canceling method, you don't you don't really want to spend a lot of time doing these these valuations and looking at things like free cash flow, you don't really need to do that because 
if you're buying momentum, if you're buying something that has uh, a high relative strength measure, it's institutions are buying it. By the time you've done your valuation and your analysis, that stock may have already moved on you. So it's better if you are buying momentum to, there's one metric you can look at very quickly. There's a few that you can glance at just to, to I guess, verify whether or not that momentum is justified. And that would be something like, just look at the operating cash flows of the company. If you see a trend and the operating cash flows are growing, don't worry about the free cash flow. Just look at the operating cash flow. The company's profitable. It's growing. And that can be enough to justify their beating expectations, their beating analyst EPS forecast. That's enough to justify that momentum and you can buy it. And then once you've established the position, then if you want, you can do evaluation and get into the weeds and really do a discounted cash flow analysis. For the most part, you don't, you don't really have time or a need to do that. But now that I got that out of the way, for those that are interested and want to know the, the fundamentals and how to do this kind of stuff and what it even means. So free cash flow is just, long story short, it's the amount of cash that the company has to either reinvest in the business or return to shareholders. And it ties into what I spoke about the return on equity. So there's two types of free cash flow. There's free cash flow to the firm, which is the pre-debt measure of free cash flow. So what you want to do, well, I won't get into that. I'll do a longer video about it, but then you've got free cash flow to equity, which is post-debt. So that's once you've subtracted the debt, how much is, is uh, available, how much free cash flow is available to the equity holders in a business. And there's four cases where it's suitable to use free cash flow to do evaluation. The first is when a company doesn't pay a dividend. So you want to come up with a present value for a company that doesn't pay a dividend. You use that free cash flow, discounted cash flow. Uh, number two, a company does pay a dividend, but there's no clear relationship between the dividend paid and its earnings or cash flows. <laughs> so as you'll notice, there's a lot of companies, Coca-Cola is an example. They have an arbitrary $1 per share dividend, and it doesn't really change. Well, you're not going to do a dividend discount model or a Gordon growth model to calculate the intrinsic value of that business when the dividend is unrelated to their earnings. So you want to use a free cash flow metric for that valuation. Then the third would be if a company's free cash flow aligns with the company's profitability. And this is where I say you, you might want to just look at operating cash flows because you can get into trouble if you're trying to calculate the free cash flow and do a present value on that. There's companies that are growing profitably but they reinvest all of their free cash flow into growth opportunities. So they may actually have negative free cash flow or no free cash flow at all, even though their operating cash flows are growing and they're growing profitably. So depending if they have a lot of capital expenditures, you don't want to use a free cash flow analysis for that because it's, it's going to give you a, a, a wrong intrinsic value. And then the fourth would be if the investor takes a control perspective of that business. So that would be something like the Berkshire model where they own businesses outright, they own the cash flows, and then they can do whatever they want with those cash flows. So you don't really have to worry about, um, or that, that's what you're interested in. You want to see those cash flows and then reinvest it how you please. So that, that, that's what I got. I kind of ran through it, but um, I'll do a longer video. Happy to explain it if someone wants to send me an email, has questions about it, but if you're looking for momentum, check out the operating cash flows, and that's probably your best bet. All right. Thanks, Mike. Uh, listen, Dan Kofal, my former partner, his favorite metric was free cash flow because that actually talks about safety. He, he used to always say nobody ever went bankrupt 
that had positive free cash flow to equity because they're making money. The only exception was Dow Corning that did the breast implants and they got sued and the lawyers took them down. They were actually a profitable business. But with that exception, no company's ever gone bankrupt when they had strong, positive free cash flow. So for banking and underwriting and for safety, free cash flow measure is a great measure. If you're talking about a high growth stock, Mike's right, a lot of times they'll reinvest the monies into R&D and for further growth. So if their free cash flow is too high, they actually could be retarding growth. You don't want it that high in that particular situation. So it's not a be-all, end-all measure, but it is a definite measure of safety. And uh, Mike's going to do a, a, a longer educational video. We're opening up a new page on, on YouTube pretty soon, coming up. It's called Revere University, where we'll put uh, educational webinar uh, 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 videos up there about relative strength or Fibonacci or, or even fundamental stuff like what Mike's talking about, EPS, calculation, fully diluted. And so you'll be able to go there, and we're going to populate that over time so people can go there. It'll be your resource uh, to study and to look at. All right, Don, do you have anything else before I close out? Yeah, Mike, uh, on our um... – on MarketSmith, they, they give a cash flow metric. Like I brought up Coke, the example that you mentioned. It says their cash flow is 279. This is not the same as free cash flow, correct? Uh, no, that would be. I mean, I would I would have to check the numbers, but I would assume that's their operating cash flows. Yeah, nor normally when the company reports cash flow, there's there's actually three different measures of free cash flow: uh, free cash flow from operations, free cash flow from I think capital at CapEx and then free cash flow to equity is the final. That's like fully diluted EPS. That's like just to shareholders. But when they report, they normally report free cash flow from operations. So it's before it's before you take out the debt number. So it's a little bit higher than a free cash flow metric you might do for underwriting for bonds or something. But yeah, it's, it's free cash flow from operations. All right. Sounds good. Take us home, Dan. All right, folks, listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor, just send them to revereasset.com and up in the right hand corner, there's a subscribe button. They can put their email address and their name in and we won't spam them or reach out to them in any way. It's up to them to reach out to us. And by the way, there's a contact button next to the subscribe button. It goes directly to me. You can send me an email. You can ask about a complimentary portfolio review, a topic you want discussed on the show, or just a stock you want reviewed or talked about on the show to get our thoughts. And you can always, always email any of us directly, dan at revereasset.com, don at revereasset.com, or Michael Connor or Ted at revereasset.com. And you can always call us old school at 855 Real Wealth. Folks, have a wonderful and safe three day weekend. Get rejuvenated and, 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 and revived. And you'll see our daily market insights video that Don puts out next Tuesday. And we'll talk to you next week on Friday on your money. Because it's not how much you make in the markets, it's how much of that you can keep.
Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.